Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of the Black Box News Podcast. I'm your host, Sierra L. Ward, artivist, black woman, griot. Um, and honestly, um, I have some thoughts. <laughs> I have some thoughts. And now that I'm thinking about it, I really feel like the beginning of these episodes have transformed into my throne thoughts concept <laughs> from Instagram. I really, I think what's happening is every time I create something like as a social media strategy, my body just is like, girl, fuck that shit. They profiting off your labor, girl. Fuck that shit. Find another platform. <laughs> so I'm just going to say that in the beginning of each of these episodes, we'll have some throne thoughts. And rightfully so, because I'm sitting in front of my throne. <laughs> I'm sitting in front of the famous throne chair. Um, but I have some thoughts. I've been thinking, um, well, first of all, y'all know I love Kendrick Lamar, which I'm not going to get into my analysis of this album that just came out. Um, I'm really hoping to get some episodes recorded with Jelly um so just so I have another mind in the space um because I know sometimes I can get real stanny <laughs> although I do have critiques of this album though let's let me name that while I can like um you know push back on some of the sort of backlash of this album because I'm like well you know, art is really for the artists, but I still have some critiques, although I still really love Kendrick Lamar. But in the land of Kendrick Lamar and in the, in the land of um, Kendrick Lamar theory, I keep looking. I think why I run away from social media so much sometimes is, you know, like I like to release my opinions on social media, but I think social media really pushes us to monetize or even not even monetize which is also true but like be on the journey of monetization is that a word <laughs> it's gonna be today Monetize monetization of you know our lives period like whether or not you even have a like craft or something that can be you know made into a product um and and in the land of Kendrick Lamar, I was thinking about, you know, how much of our how much of social media pushes us to pimp our lives um, in particular, which is, you know, this whole idea of having to monetize every fucking thing like to have a to have a hobby is kind of really unheard of nowadays. I think it's one thing for your hobby to somehow fall into, you know, really being a part of your livelihood. But I think the push from jump to monetize or pimp you know whatever it is that you're creating in the moment um so immediately I think it's a little ridiculous um but it this idea is interesting in that um if you know Kendrick Lamar <laughs> and you've listened to some of his interviews Especially if we're talking about the album To Pimp a Butterfly, like he's really thinking about con consistently and constantly, like how is it, um, how is it or how can he um, 
you know, use his celebrity status um, to like responsibly and how he is engaging with wealth differently, um, how he is engaging with these things that the world tells him is valuable in a way that is still grounding him in both where he's come from, but his values, who he wants to be. Um, uh, and, and he does so by channeling his creative creativity differently. But what I like, don't like, um, as it pertains to social media is how it pushes us to pimp everything so quickly. Like, I think it's different, um, for artists or whatever your art form is, because I don't like to gatekeep the word artist. I think everything can, um, be theorized as being an artistic practice. Um, but I think social media really pushes us to pimp every part of our lives especially as it pertains to like healing healing health and wellness (laughs) like those are the two spirituality like those are those are like the three (laughs) that's like the, the the holy fucking trinity of social media and I'm you know thinking about like people who um push themselves to I don't know, get into working out or choosing a different, um, choosing a different diet, diet, just being the things that you eat every day and not necessarily a diet as how we've come to understand it. Um, or even just like entering into a different spiritual practice, like how much of that, um, is pimped on a day-to-day basis. Like, okay, now all of a sudden you're taking me on this journey that actually, should be quite private because uh, uh, publicizing for the sake of publicity, um, just because I don't have another word, or some sort of like social status or um, like analytics, right? Pimping, Pimping your lived experiences for analytics as it pertains to, let's say, a mental health thing or a, a healing journey per se, right? I think it really stunts growth because then inherently while we don't want to name it as this social media is a performance, right? And so if you are actively making what should be a practice, a performance, you're consistently in a practice of polishing this thing that needs to be ugly for a little bit. Um, And I think that undoes some of the messiness um, because no matter what, every time you hit the record button, you're in the process of like fixing yourself. I'm like pulling my shirt down, you know, like straightening out the creases, like, you know, that sort of thing. And that's inevitably that is what happens when we hit the record button, when we begin to prepare something to be shared to a greater audience and I think this is really it gets it gets to be murky or uncharted waters when you can see that somebody's genuinely wanting to heal genuinely wanting to move forward with their lives but every time that they do that workout to help um, clear their mind or go to that therapist or 
eating different food they're recording it and then posting it for you so now they're not even in the process of sitting with things they're in a in a process of polishing it and it's like sometimes sometimes you're healing sometimes um your journey doesn't need to be polished at the moment it just doesn't need to be polished at the moment um I think this is why I run away from like uh or have run away from in general I think most of like my social media life because social media is fucking new um just like letting things operate underneath the radar and popping up when shit is done um because it is I know from experience like how painful it is like ugh, to have to be in an active practice of creating a product when practice and process is where you want to be leaning into and what you need to be leaning into in order for your body to even tell you what the product is so that's my two cents on that i feel a ways about it um also shit boy i watched the first episode of lovecraft country and while I could go to a very deep, deep analysis of it, they're just, some, I don't, I don't want to do that. <laughs> Labor. <laughs> I don't want to do that. But something that I think is so interesting um, in watching that. Well, one, y'all, I really wish that. I really wish that dark skinned people could love on dark skinned people on, on TV. I love homegirl. I can't remember her name, but she really like she typecast. She always the girl in the South. She's always somebody's love interest in the South. She always got the Mississippi accent. <laughs> that was my try at it. <laughs> but, you know, she's always a Southern belle. Um, but I really just wish that we could have, you know, the same complected people loving on the same complected people. I, we always see the same sort of familial structure. Um, in these type of shows, which is why I really liked them so much. I really appreciate it. Um, no matter how like, you know, horrific it was for people to stomach. Um, it was a dark skinned couple with a dark skinned family. You know, I appreciated that. But something I thought was really interesting about this first episode of Lovecraft Country um, is how they. Well, maybe it's just also my mind thinking about it, but like the awareness or like bringing to light this concept of sun sundown towns which is still very much so a thing i be wanting people to know this and i know people do but like we don't i don't think we talk about it sometimes i think we'd be like mm, it's moving and shaking with the times but like no bitch it's 2022 and there's still fucking sundown towns i remember being in um I don't know if my, I think my dad and I had come from Cincinnati or we had come from Kings Island or something. And, um, he, he always called, he always goes, I'm a bloodhound. And that like, he can sniff out where he's supposed to be or where he's supposed to go. Like, fuck the GPS, fuck the map. I got this shit. That's my dad. And so his black eyes wanted to do the bloodhound thing. And we were in the middle of a sundown town, dark. We couldn't figure out where home was. He knew, like, in the general vicinity of where he should be going, but we were lost. It was the first time I ever really been lost with my dad in Ohio. And so we're driving around, like, I mean, like, country road. Like, 
two-way street like you know that direction and this direction that's fucking it and it's so funny I remember talking to my dad and I remember like the shift in energy in the car um and that he was like well I'm like you know I'm thinking like you know why don't we stop um recalibrate and then we both realized and agreed was like um we can't stop here and go to what that gas station we can't and this was uh mid 2000s I think I might have been in high school I'm not that fucking old and so it's like he and I both knew like well we should stop but can we stop absolutely not because this is a sundown town and so with that I began to think about like how much of uh of history um how much of history has been like this sort of weaponizing of the earth like weaponizing of the earth and just like the like the phenomenas of the world right the sun like the fact that these trees grow up out of the ground like the vastness of waters like how these three elements have been really weaponized against black people right the sun sun downtowns the trees lynchings water the middle passage like all of these things and it uh it makes the sort of weight um of black people truly owning owning land that much more like monumental and important it shifts it from being merely trying to move into old money or trying to be like approach middle class or trying to just be wealthy like it's different it's different than financial gain like there is a healing with the land that happens when black people own land and that is possible that is possible shout out to um my peeps Rochelle Jamila who has this initiative named heal with the land where she's acquiring land and in this journey of acquiring land so that um black people and people of color can really live on land and figure out what does it mean to have a spiritual practice that works with the land and not against the land like all of these things and I think it is so important um and also I think this is why so many of uh, my colleagues both my colleagues and myself who are like wanting to acquire land in order to provide a safe space um in order to provide a place where um black folks can explore their nowness their humanity um what like what it means to be black and this thing um with this history of the land that we stand on with this history of the trees that surround us um you know what is it what does it mean to be what does it mean to be black on ancestral land and have a positive relationship to it um what does it mean to like be in the south and see the trees and have a a a yes and experience with the duality of emotions that arise when you see trees hanging low um yeah I I think that is so important and I think that um 
that is something that is always astounding to me is how, you know, palm colored folks really, they was really strategic. Um, they're really strategic in, in using the earth as, as a weapon for themselves and against other people. Um, so yeah, that was just my first thought. I also thought it was so interesting, um, in, in Lovecraft, Lovecraft country, this use of sci-fi, again, y'all just watched the first episode, but this use of sci-fi as like a tactic to rewrite the possibilities of survival. And then like more specifically, like how can one use the instincts of surviving that is like, honestly, y'all embedded in black people, we know this, but like, how can one use the instincts of surviving to the good of black people within a film? So that, you know, like the same course of action isn't taken, a.k.a. like killing by the hands of the hatred of, you know, white people and the institution of whiteness. Like, what does it mean for us not to die in the first episode and like the peak of this like um, action? Right. Because I mean, easily a character could have, you know, been killed off, but it was white folks that was dying. Reparations. i love this first episode also this this proverb that you know probably wasn't written in the with the intention of being a proverb but like fear won't save you and ooh ooh y'all that fucking hit my chest because i really have been pushing i push through so much fear often most days um, I have a lot of trauma that sits on my chest. And so I think I needed that. That was like a mini sermon. I love when I can, I love when I can engage with the arts and like, um, artistic products in the same way as I would approach, um, or engage like a piece of holy text. And I also love this sort of shift in my spiritual practice to approach many things as a holy text. Um, as opposed to, you know, the Bible being the only thing that can have access to that idea or that um, foundational modality, whatever, blah, 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 these words, 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 words. But yeah, I like that. I like expanding. I like expanding this idea of what is allowed to be called holy. Um, ooh, that's a paper. <laughs> it's a book. <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> All right, y'all. I'm going to start talking. Uh, we are going to get into our theme song right about now. Tell me what it is. Mm. I didn't see this coming. I didn't know nothing at all Yeah There's something silent in There's something silent in the air Whoa It looms, it looms The truth is overdue Alright y'all, this is the point in the podcast Where we pass the motherfucking collection plate um, and I also want to be transparent. I'd like to do this before I get into the girth of the episode because I used to hate, hate, 
hated when like you would get the sermon and then and then we pa- and then we pass the collection plate or like sometimes it feels that feels odd to me for whatever reason it's like so I did this thing for you now you do this thing for me like I don't know especially like in particular when we're talking about like guest preachers um so I like to like open up <laughs> the tithes and offerings section of my podcast before just so like you can listen knowing good and well that what you get after the book of the episode is my sign off like you know that sort of thing um so with that being said there are multiple ways that you can give (laughs) still have a patreon um under the black box news i'm excited because i think eventually maybe once i get out of school um my Patreon will begin to shift. Um, but currently, until that time comes, currently my Patreon is simply there to collect donations um, and like one-off or monthly do- donations. Actually, I think you can only do monthly donations on there. My one-off donations are through other things, which I'll get to. Um, but I also have two other particular ways that you can give. Um, one being a tech offering. I have finally settled on the mics that are needed and um other sort of tech to help support those mics which is much motherfucking cheaper y'all than the route I was trying to go that's something that the Lord be telling me he'd be like okay these are your dreams because you think that that's what you need but actually you gonna get there you gonna get to your dreams on the way there like you don't realize that your dreams is actually closer and like at the mid it at the midway point like you don't actually have to do all of that in order to get what you actually need and what you signed up for when you you know plop down on this earth um so this con- I mean this continues to happen I oh my god y'all I really want to I just told myself girl you could get yourself a motherfucking Honda Civic and y'all my black ass bought a Kia and love it more than a fucking Honda Civic in fact I test drove a Honda Civic and I was like I fucking hate it I don't like the way my body sits in this car I don't like the eye level for me like I just didn't like it come to find out the Kia was much cheaper much easier to get and I honestly enjoyed it it's like oh I love that my dreams are cheaper than like the shit that I'd be like really stacking on top of myself that's neither here nor there but mm tech offering which is like an amazon wish list um also second way is book offerings book offerings are really important as i begin to like really dig deep in my scholarship and my master's program and also um you know they really help guide the episodes that are coming up um between jelly and i um and other future episodes as i begin to like inch away at creating collectives of black women scholars uh, through this sort of avenue of the podcast. Um, but also one-off donations, um, just cash app, which is the money sign. What do they call it? A cash tag, cash tag, uh, Sear Ward, and then Vimo, which is at Sear Ward. Uh, my PayPal is at TBB News. That's really simple. Um, but yeah, y'all, you know, I always say like, if you learn something from me, you know, throw a bitch a couple dollars, you know, I do strange things for a piece of change sometimes. Not really, not really y'all, but, um, 
<laughs> it be in the back of my mind the way the pockets be looking like i'd be like y'all what this body for it if it ain't doing something strange for a motherfucking piece of change um <laughs> i'm laughing but it's so serious but yeah you know if you learn something or even if you don't learn something if you like really are like wow that's real food for thought or that's something i didn't even think about or wow like that's really to shout y'all like that you know that's a word or that you know send me a couple dollars everything that you send goes towards the podcast in some way shape or form whether that's tech whether that's book whether that's paying people like um oh my god i would love one day to not have to produce the podcast i could just focus on recording so there are a lot of things that your money goes towards but if nothing else i always appreciate you lending me your ear Switch it up with no warning. Bottle it up now. All of your pain, you're tearing the pillars down only for your love to count. I'm not gonna fix it now. Oh no, mm. go on, talk it up. Tell a story, tell it the way you want. I know you know the truth. But since we talking about pressures, yeah, let's talk. Let's, let's since we talking about let's pressures, get into the book. You know, honestly, I felt a little convicted. Um, it's on page sixty. I should probably go to it. But I remember her speaking about, um, and I, we're kind of talking about this here. But I know that she's speaking about it with regards to like career and like upward mobility in that way. But if we just want to extrapolate it a little bit and talk about pressure, period. I'm like, I think I wrote down, like, what is it about pressure that is so appealing or feels like home for black women? And is there any way to find, or like, can we fall into radical acceptance that we actually find home in pressure and friction that comes with being a black woman navigating upward mobility? And I'm like, I'm thinking about this specifically as it pertains, you know, we talk about like, when you go into higher academia and the black women that you're seeing are black women who are like you, unfortunately. I mean, it's not like there's not much of a spectrum. Like, people who have made it, people who have made it this far to, like, master's programs, PhD programs are the people who have, like, endured. And there's something that is appealing. And maybe I'll just speak from my eye. Like, there's something that is appealing or there's some sort of home feeling in this trauma that we experience inside the academy that makes it feel like like maybe a dare like oh you think I can't make it so I'm gonna keep going but also I think that there for me there's something on the flip side of it is like I low-key enjoy <laughs> I think I low-key enjoy the pressures or, like, the friction that comes from, like, the upward mobility that I am seeking and specifically how it pertains to, like, um, higher education. Because it's, like, I low-key like being in theory classes where my heart is elevated. It's, like, ooh, I'm, I'm chasing the, like, thrill. I think uh, this is hard. I wrote... 
Because on page 59, she has mm-hmm. a quote where she talks about, like, the delicate dance of being fully present, yes, yet also thinking one, two, and even five years in advance. Mm-hmm. And I really, like, that resonated with me because, like, I feel like when she says delicate balance, I constantly feel that tension of, like, trying mm-hmm. to enjoy life and be fully present and feel good about what I have accomplished when I accomplish it. Mm-hmm. But that is not what these institutions are designed to do Mm -hmm. you know that that honestly isn't what capitalism is designed to do right like it's always excess it's always about wanting and striving for more and on in some ways I get pleasure in proving people wrong and I think that's what you're talking about like I love breaking down like I comped a year early really because they told me I couldn't like they (laughs) they told me I wasn't gonna know enough and I was like okay bet give me the test and I'm about to tell y'all like I know enough you know but it it really it was like a terrible feeling like Mm -hmm. doing it was awful like doing it when I did it was a lot more work than it needed to be Mm -hmm. all of that stuff I like later We just gonna let the train go by for a second. We just, is this gonna keep going for a little bit? It was too hot, so we had to let the windows be open. It ain't gonna blow no more. You can go ahead. Are you sure? I know this train. Okay. No, no train. No, I just, I struggle because I'm. It's like when I tackle one goal, Mm -hmm. and people really ask me like. How does it feel like to have passed? How does it feel to have done this? Like, and it's like I don't, I can't really communicate it. Like, I don't, I didn't really feel that, you know, because mm-hmm. as soon as it happened, I was on to the next. Like, mm-hmm. and that's something I don't feel like is healthy all the time, you know. But I know I seek it out. Like, even when I tell myself I'm not gonna do that, mm-hmm. your girl's out here signing up for a million things. Like, now nah, I'm gonna do it. Like, I'm. A, I've been looking at law school programs. Like you know what, I'm going to get a JD and a PhD. I'm going to just get all the degrees and what they going to say now. And like, but will I get joy from going to law school? I really doubt it. You know, like I really doubt it. But I be thinking about stuff like that. You know what's funny? What? I don't know where you came from. <laughs> I was talking to my mom and I was like, I had a realization. I was like, why I like theory classes so much is because it pulls upon my past desire which honestly would still be a a desire and a dream of mine to be a lawyer and my mom was like well what you mean like she was like you could still go to law school i'm like mom i'm too invested in this thing like i can't just like jump ship like how long would it take me to really begin to see results if i up and go to law school after getting my master's and she's like girl quit playing people don't all of a sudden find what it is that they maybe were always seeking or thought that they were seeking in these paths until they're like in their 50s, 60s. Like there are people who are finding their careers at the time. She's like, girl, you can go to law school. I said, mom, quit playing. She said, and you could. And we just you could, really honestly. Bad. It's going to be less time than a PhD, so might as well jump on that JD. <laughs> I was looking at it because JD, well, one, like, I like to argue, and that's that's what, what I'm saying. What they say, she like to argue. Send that. Vi- oh, that's rest in peace, Young Dolph. <laughs> young, young Dolph brought that up, but no, I. It's hard because, like, on one end, I think it's beautiful that like mm-hmm. we're constantly challenging ourselves, but on the other end, it's like I really want to be intentional about what those challenges are. Yeah. Because like I don't want to be challenging myself 
because of the perception or anticipation of what's expected of me, right? Like, yeah. because th- that further feels like I'm, I'm, I'm not living my life for me, you know? I'm yeah. living my life to break down, like, and, and that's the balance, right? It's yes. like, you do want to break down certain barriers yes. because there's a larger goal in mind with that. But at the same time, are you breaking down barriers or are you feeding yourself into a, a system or a cycle that really was meant to be like yeah. that really actively resisting might be more fruitful if that makes sense yeah but then I guess the question is then is like I think I think well I should say backtrack the, I think being in or I should say the academic setting period is like a sort of hyper presentation of these things but I would argue that what what it is that we're talking about right now is essentially what we're always going to go through. Yeah. And so then that's the other flip side. is like, sure, like being in higher academia makes it more present, I should say, or it's more so in your face. But like... It's more on front street because yeah. we're talking about this stuff. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. we're engaging yeah. with these types of ideas, yet we're in this institution. Yeah. So it feels like... But then again, homegirl, Phoebe Robson ain't in no institution. She is. She no 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 no. Not in the same way that we not in the same way that we are. And I mean like academia. Like she I don't know. Oh, is she in academia? She's not in academia, but, but I think the the system and institution she's writing it within is is no But that's different. what I'm saying. Everything is an institution. So then I I wonder like even if we weren't inside of oh. like academia where is like hyper visible, right? Is there any place where that sort of having to find pleasure in the friction because it's honestly better to feel home in this space or in that sort of place than feel like an alien where you probably will never excel if you don't find some sort of like home pocket. And so I'm wondering, is there any place and maybe the answer truly is no, because again, Phoebe Robinson isn't writing for a university, is in a university, but and yet she's over here making all of these businesses and writing these books while still maintaining her like comedic career. And oh, now you have a show, and it's like you're doing not even a thousand percent, you're doing two thousand percent, and like the pressures that we're speaking about isn't even present. So, is there really any place where you won't be forced to find home? And the friction that is rubbing up against, like, white gaze and whiteness and gaze, G-A-Z-E, and whiteness, like... I feel like we should get into this, because, like, some of the kind of tension I had with this chapter Mm -hmm. is that it felt like all the tips that she was giving were for how to succeed in a white space, but not how to challenge that space. It's about Mm -hmm. getting a lawyer. It's about uh, learning the language. It's about hiring the right people. It's about being a boss that people want to follow. It's about creating a... It's all of these things that she's uh, a lot of times comparing to her experience in white spaces and trying to recreate in in what... in this kind of realm of what we see as a successful business. Mm-hmm. And and so I wonder... That was, that was hard for me because reading it... Reading the first few chapters, you know, she does. She's not writing to white people, mm-hmm. um, and and maybe like what I'm wanting is something that's just not really like how you talk about feeling alien. Like that is how I feel often because I 
I want so badly to recreate and like reimagine. So it's hard for me to read the like I think she's giving very practical tips, right? Mm-hmm. But those tips are doing nothing to challenge the very corporate America that My forces yeah. forces publisher bl- black publishers and black authors to be to be marginal in the field, to not have a voice. So in creating your own publishing house, what are you doing to reimagine what that looks like? Like specifically she talks about on page 102 like towards the very end, she talks about um, your company cannot be run by committee. So you've got to make the executive decisions. That is just something so, it's so minor, but it stood out to me because it's following all of her tips. And to me, all I was thinking is why not? You know, like mm. what is the point for us having the, like what is the point of having a black publisher if we're not doing anything to challenge the, the field of publishing? You know what I mean? I do. So it's hard because I realize her tips are to succeed. Like, they they really will help black entrepreneurs in a lot of various ways. It is, like, the reality is, is that things are legal. You will need a lawyer. You won't know that language. But I guess for me, it's, like, hard to want to occupy a space that those things are needed, if that makes sense. So I, I do think institutions are, I think what we deal with in, in academia is no different than what Phoebe Robinson probably deals with in her day-to-day, in mm-hmm. all her various kind of shows, books, companies, websites, all of those things. I know she experiences what we do, but I think because mm-hmm. we're in a space that uh, is meant to talk about those things, is meant to challenge those things, those systems. The fact that we're in a space where people talk about it, but nothing changes, is a lot more on front street Mm -hmm. than, like, I think everyone wants to make money and no one questions why, you know? Because you have to survive. But also, I guess to add to that, I'm trying to um, find where it is. I can't remember, was it ABC? She said, or the network. I can't remember who it is, the network that she was working with. There's somebody off. Either way, there's a big name company that I probably should have wrote down that helped her in aiding um, her sort of. production. Yeah, the production of. Was it a. Like, fuck, I can't remember what the name of it was. Whatever her publishing, both, because she, she had two. They're both like tiny reparations. Yes, 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 yes. And so. It's interesting to have this thing called tiny reparations with white people behind essentially the foundational sort of operations, maybe if that's how I want to say it, that built this company. It's like, oh, they offered you, they offered you, oh, well, do you want to make your own show instead of being in this show? And it's like, it's really weird to call it tiny reparations when, like, white people are behind it. Or, like, maybe is that the is that the point, that they, they came to your aid and helped you? But, but even then, it's still, like you said, it's still operating on a capitalist sort of model where you have an assistant. Yeah, I mean, she's, like, she's talking about having an assistant. One of her tips is about, like, be frugal, basically. Mm-hmm. Like, when you're running a business, like... Don't give the people the best. Give yeah, them, like for because you top. need to make money yes. and like, and I get it. I think those tips are how you can succeed in in these spaces. Mm-hmm. But I, but I'm I don't want to. You know, like I don't, I don't want that. I don't. 
I, I would love, like, if, if I saw myself having a publishing house, like, I would really hope that this was a collaborative space, that there was no, like, hierarchy. And I get that a lot of the things that I, like, reimagine or envision for those things are unrealistic or unfeasible mm -hmm. to the every everyday person. But I guess I would see that as the challenge I'm yearning for. Like, when yeah. we talk about wanting to push ourselves, I feel like a lot of what we do in academic spaces, at least some of us, it's been so much time exhausting ourselves, pushing against how things are supposed to be done, what research is, is, is deemed rigorous or, mm -hmm. or valuable, mm -hmm. what theories are, we, we do so much work to position black thought, black consciousness as something that's as that doesn't need defense or or meaning within a white space that we know yeah. our professors won't understand. Yeah. We know the people reviewing our work will not understand. And we're doing even more work to say F that you don't understand. I don't care that you don't understand, but I'm going to give you a million reasons why it doesn't matter if you don't understand, you still have to accept it. Yeah. Because I, and it's like we kill ourselves. We do. We read a million things. We we have to be well-versed in all the white stuff, all the white literature, just as much as yeah. the black literature, in, in order to communicate why that black literature is needed and effective. And it feels like when it comes to business and money, that is seen as very different. That is seen as something that's like, we don't question professionalism or what a business looks like or what leadership looks like. And I wrote in my notes, like, what would it be if like we and Phoebe Robinson were to reimagine this bosshood that she's talking about? What if as black women, we were we, we mobilize boss as something that's more than just a, another word for leader in the right. corporate world? What if a boss is is creating a business that is a committee mm -hmm. and not and not uh, an executive in a hierarchy. What like why is it so hard for us? I think in general, like it's hard for most people to kind of envision a non hierarchical yeah. setting. Well, I also, <clears throat> as you're speaking, I'm thinking like, and and maybe I should also continue to speak for my eye. I remember like making businesses and because I've had a business before and um, even when it comes down to producing work or what have you anything that comes from like a byproduct of my you know creative abilities which I have a shit ton of them I the first thing that feels really romantic is to be the face and I think it comes from if I have to psychoanalyze myself the fact that I'm used to not having, do you know what I mean? Like, used to not having enough or used to not being claimed, period. Like, having to force my foot through the door for you to, like, want to talk about my scholarship to other people or take up value in what it is that I have to offer to the space. Um, and so I'm wondering, is that is that what it is? Is that what's so alluring? Because, you know, I mean, like, we're, like, in small claims courts. You know what I mean? Like, she is really up there, has money that we haven't seen before, this, that, and the third, especially as it pertains to, like, these publishing companies. Like, it's not, no, like, a small thing to have a publishing company and an effective one at that. Not and just a black to, one. Right, not just to name it. And so I'm wondering if that is what feels really, like, romantic and alluring about it is to be able to have your face 
on things also because, you know, we come from, you know, the civil rights era where it was important to have a face because having a face meant that people could find home in having one thing to look to, right? It's why we still continue to celebrate the first of things, like first black woman to do this, first black, I mean, we're doing this still to this day, which I think is ridiculous, but like it's something about having somebody who is essentially the face of your penny like and and I get it I think I do get it and not having much because like you know would it be that big of a deal like white people ain't out here saying (laughs) you the first this the first white person they're not doing it because it's the standard and so I'm wondering if like the the sort of sophistication and scholarship of black people um and just like the amount that we have to offer, if it was a given and not something that was tokenized everywhere, would we have more like community led like businesses or business models because going one wouldn't really make sense or having one person be the head of it wouldn't really make sense. So it's like we all can do that. You know what I mean? I uh, there's this book by Ta-Nehisi Coates called The Beautiful Struggle mm-hmm. and it's really just like kind of a a memoir of like him growing up with his dad mm-hmm. who was in the Black Panther Party and like I learned a lot from that book as well as Asada Shakur's autobiography mm-hmm. about like like what's hard what's really hard for me is that we have such great examples in the Black Panther Party in how to do that and how to create our own self-sufficient community garden, how to create our own curriculum, how to create our own finance, our own economies, basically. Mm -hmm. We've done this. It's not new, but it seems, it it worries me when racial politics become a matter of representation and visibility because we both know that visibility means nothing because one, black people are not a monolith. Yeah. We don't all have the same experiences, class, backgrounds, upbringings, mm-hmm. beliefs. Mm-hmm. We don't even all view ourselves the same. That's a fact. Um, so just having black bodies and spaces and occupations in, in ownership positions does not inherently change anything about our system, about racism, about black, yeah. anti-blackness. It doesn't. And it feels like on the road, it feels like we all start with these like visions. We're all mm-hmm. visionaries. And it feels like on the road to that, it is very hard to keep it, it, including in academia. You see so many people come in with like these revolutionary ideas, these radical theories, these thoughts. They're playing with things in ways we've never seen in in the academy. Mm -hmm. But the continued pushback, the continued disengagement, it it pushes you to your work is no longer about your ideas. Mm -hmm. It becomes a matter of response and anticipation. Mm -hmm. And I worry, like, when it comes to money, that's the hardest thing, right? Like, I truly, if anyone is familiar with, like, the Kumbahee River Collective, like, Mm -hmm. they are at the heart an anti-capitalist organization. They're very against capitalism. Mm -hmm. They formed, before being a black lesbian organization, Mm -hmm. they were anti-capitalist. They were the only black women who were at anti-capitalist riots. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? And they write about this. They Mm -hmm. talk about it. But I, we've definitely lost that piece in terms of our organizing because we have fed into the system so much. It's no longer that we want to make money for survival. We want to make money because money is the stamp of success. 
And mm-hmm. success is everything to black people mm-hmm. who have been completely dis disembarred from having any opportunities mm-hmm. at success. But what I want so badly for us as a community, but I also recognize yeah. is is a, a challenge beyond any other, yeah. is to redefine what success looks like. Yes. Because I don't want success to be about monetary gain or representation or name and visibility or recognition. I don't I don't seek to be Du Bois in the academy. You know what I mean? I, I think he I, there's a lot we can learn from Du Bois, but that is not why I'm here. I'm not here to have the notoriety that he now has because he didn't have that when he was alive. You know what I mean? Yes. A lot of the artists that I appreciate and respect don't have a name in the same ways that Jay-Z and Beyonce do, you know? Like, they're not held up because to be held up as an icon, in some ways, I'm starting to feel, mm-hmm. means that you have to start shedding that that goal, that desire, that yearning. Yeah, because to get there requires sacrifice. And that's what me and um, Ronnie talk about a lot when we talk about all of a sudden black politicians sort of rising up to the limelight and, like, they're, like, in this place of being chosen or they're the black person that, you know, gets these positions. But she said that, like, this damn fucking train. I know. I was like, dang. Oh, my gosh. But she names, like, she being uh, Rania, she she named not too long ago like so when we see these people it makes her not trust the politicians because she questions what it is of their belief systems that they've had to forego sacrifice and shed just to be the appealing black person in that space because i would argue that they don't want a black politician that is going to challenge them really like, and I wouldn't say that they're yes men. I think that's going too far. But I do think that there is a level of like, like, is it de-weaponizing? Is that the word? Or just like docile, dociling the body just ever so slightly to where, oh, I'm okay with you being in the room now. I'm okay with you being a part of like the policy making. And that is what is uncomfortable. And I think to add to like this idea of success, it brings me to the point that I was telling you when she said, like, see, this is what happens when you're new money, but acting like old money. Well, old money has a very racist connotation. And, like, in order to get to old money, like, essentially, you have to participate in modern-day slavery. You have to. There's no way around it. There's no way, like, it. there's no way to ever become old money without taking advantage of people. And so I think, even though I know, I know, I know, I know, like giving the benefit of the of the doubt that like that is not what she intended to say in hindsight or like subliminally teach us but it's like is the goal to be old money is it because Beyonce I think is old money now but when it comes to entertainers the people who get the butt end of the fucking joke are dancers are people who are helping these shows or just anybody producing these shows like they're the last people that people are thinking about getting paid and not to say that Beyonce doesn't pay people but even the Super Bowl right the Super Bowl recently all the, it was this massive fucking uproar because people weren't getting paid Kanye's dancers for the all the like mad I don't even know what you would call them like it feels very like flash mobby his performances mm-hmm. those people aren't getting paid and they're having how many time or how many hours do they have to invest so if we're talking about old money and like that is still the model of success that we're all striving for because 
arguably I would say that that is what this chapter is arguing for because of this metaphor that she's used like are we just simply trying to flip the script because then if that's the case then if what places black people on top sure 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 cool cool but then it still sort of begins to recreate a system that we're in a place of fighting against uh, yeah and I think like again it's not on black people necessarily to fix that yeah. Like, obviously, right. survival is a very real thing, mm-hmm. and, and you need money to survive, mm-hmm. and I recognize that, which is why it's always, I find myself always, like, really struggling in, in a lot of spaces that I occupy, because most people think like this, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, I, my dad writes motivational books about how to succeed, mm-hmm. and all I read in this is, like, you're an Afro-Caribbean, like, immigrant. Mm-hmm. And you're you're writing these books, I mean, to motivate the same thing that Phoebe Robinson is really motivating yeah. is like how to be an effective leader, how to not run your assistants off, how to make employees at least like decent. But it's interesting that she starts the chapter with this man who faked his own kidnapping mm-hmm. in order to, because I thought the chapter was going in a completely different direction because of that. Because I was thinking immediately, like, alienation from work and how, like, we are like robots now. Mm -hmm. And she's writing in the pandemic time where it's, like, even more alienated from our work and what we do. And it's it's hard. You bring up the politicians. You bring up a lot of things. And all of it is what I think about on a day-to-day basis, is what I'm trying to grapple with on a regular basis. Because I worry that I'm going to be in that same position. And I already am in a lot of ways, obviously, you know, like the student loan debt is knocking every day. Mm -hmm. I'm writing, I'm doing, I'm much, I'm burdening myself to not only write the way I want to write, but write the way I want to write with defenses in place because I know it will be critiqued. And I, I guess I, I struggle with that, what she calls the delicate balance of like Mm -hmm. being present because I, for me... I don't find excitement necessarily in doing more challenging, but Mm -hmm. I'm always thinking about it. Mm -hmm. I'm always thinking about what's next. I'm always thinking about what I can do better, what I can do more of, how I can be the first this, that, and the other. And all of that is around these ideals of success that I know I don't believe in. Yeah. And it's, I I find myself thinking about it and I'm like, stop it. You know, Mm -hmm. like I'm slapping myself like, this isn't what you want. But it's hard when that's the world you live in. And like, Whatever we do, there, like, I wrote down in my notes, like, what does it mean to be satisfied? Because I just genuinely don't know. I don't know. I don't even know for myself sometimes. What does it mean for me to be satisfied, not just in my life, but in what I do? And mm-hmm. there's so many, like, theorists from way back when, before the U.S. was the U.S., Mm -hmm. who were writing about this, who were writing about what work would do, what capitalism would do. And and for the most part, those things have come true. People don't go to work because they love what they do. That that is rare. That is a privilege. People's work is less tied to who they are than ever before. And in some ways, we can talk about the positives, but in other ways, we can talk about how that leads to people faking their own kidnapping, Mm -hmm. right? So, like... I guess I just, I struggle within my own self. I'm like, will I ever be satisfied in my life? It's like, so funny that you say this because this mantra, I've started a new mantra, which I have several. 
But I, like, am periodically going through my day and saying, I just want to love my life. I don't want to like it. I want to love my life. And I want to love what I do. And I want to love my life. And I want to love my... Because it's like, that is a privilege. Like, I don't want to just like what I do. I want to thoroughly be in love with it and continue. And it's just like, how much of that love is tied up in joy that I feel like I can't experience because I'm always worried about or maybe not even worried but just like knowing that for me to and I wrote this down I started to psychoanalyze myself about it too like (laughs) why is it that when something goes my way I I have to force whatever this feeling of joy is that I think it's supposed to feel like and that feeling is so alien that I end up performing joy in a way that feels like a performative exercise inside of a studio that's like stretching me and I'm uncomfortable. And I know that I should be happy. I know that I just got this funding or I know that I just got this scholarship or I know that I just got accepted into this thing. But like, because I'm always on the offense or the defense, whichever we want to call it, about, okay, the next step, okay, the next step, okay, which I think she's also arguing about, like, not being able to, like, settle and feel content because that feels like a poor management of time. And I think what's interesting hearing you say oh I thought the chapter was going to go in a different direction I I guess I kind of did too I didn't really like analyze what my expectations were until the next chapter I'm gonna like take notes on that but like I think my expectation was for her to talk about or rally for rest so did I right in a way that I was like you're actually giving tips to like do more deplete successfully do you know what I mean? Yeah. And it's like, I'm reading her emotions on the page about like how difficult it is to be everything for everybody. And she doesn't say, don't be everything for everybody. She says, I did it and here's how you can do it with less pain. Mm-hmm. Not, how about we pivot? Or maybe I am not, I am not the only person who is ahead of this publishing company. I'm sure there are thousands of black women writers out there who would benefit more from having like a house of people who were doing this work as opposed to just one person. It's also why I did start to do this with the podcast because I was like, I don't want to be the only person talking and I benefit from having other people present. And so it's like, how can I on a small scale see that? But like when uh, like there's way more money involved, you can bring more people in like. No, this is so this is kind of like what is so difficult about community organizing in today's society. Like I. I'm like a co-founder of a community organization back home in Oklahoma, 44th Rose. Mm -hmm. And it's really been difficult because the more I try to be, find that satisfaction, that contentness. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, it's a girl, oh my gosh, what is her? Amber. Mm -hmm. Amber, I want to give her props. In our class, a black woman, uh, all she said, and it really resonated, she Mm -hmm. said, you know, I came to grad school and all I wanted to do was read books and know-ish. And I was like, that's it, you know? That's really I I came to grad school because 
I wanted to read and learn. Mm-hmm. Like, I wanted to grow in my thoughts. Mm-hmm. And I, I do feel like I do that in some ways, but not because of grad school. I do that in spite of grad school. Mm-hmm. I do that in spite of what I'm being taught. And I think it's very, in, in community organizing, money becomes the motive, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, well, we can't do these events. We can't set up these programs. We can't do these things or provide aid it's if we trap. don't have money. Yeah. To get money, we have to market ourselves in a way that that businesses want to donate to us, that 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 CEOs want to give us money, that we can apply for nonprofit status, which is to a white world. Mm-hmm. And and so it's so hard to think through these things because it's like the more I feel satisfied in what I'm doing, mm-hmm. it's so easy to get pulled back in. It's so it's if I disconnect from everything, your girl is good. I'm out here reading my little books. I'm like, wow, I can't write to I can't wait to write my own book. Like I'm excited. Mm-hmm. But the moment I step into the classroom, the moment I step into my my committee meetings with this with the community organization, mm-hmm. I'm reminded that like there is a real world out there yeah. that I can't just disconnect from. And I know that Phoebe's writing from within that world. And I'm privileged in a sense to like not have to be fully in that world. Yeah. I'm not, my, you know, I'm living on student loans like your girl, like your mm-hmm. girl really is getting a paycheck. Like I'm out here, <laughs> I'm balling out. Like the, like I'm not gonna have to pay these loans back. Yeah. Hopefully I won't, shoot. But, yeah. but like, and not that grad school is easy by any means or it's a privilege to be a grad student. Like we are definitely mm-hmm. some of the most marginalized pe- people because we're an occupation without being an occupation. We're exploited for, for things that we'll never get paid for. And and it's a space that we thought we would go and be welcomed, and we aren't. We thought we would go, and our ideas would mobilize, and they would move, but we are stagnant. They're holding us. And so, but I still recognize that I am not having to deal with the everyday workings of a nine to five, that I'm not seeking a promotion anywhere, that I'm not seeking those things, a salary raise, anything like that. And I can't imagine what it's like to have goals outside of that because my goals have nothing to do with money or success in those rigid ways. Like, Mm -hmm. your girl just wants to write. I just want to write and read. Like, if I could do that my whole life, I would be happy. And so (laughs) when I ask the question of, like, well, what does it mean for me to be satisfied? I know that's what it is. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's it's when the goals I have get faced with reality that, like, you can't just... You, you really can't just start a community organization without money. Yep. So, but, and it's much more difficult to find routes of financial aid that are in line with your own beliefs and politics yes, and vision. Yeah. It's, it's much more difficult. Mm-hmm. And you have to have people willing to do that with you. And it's, and it's hard. Like, I, I, I definitely feel like an alien most times yeah. because, like, I, I think that how I sound is just naive and, like, just very unrealistic and I'm sure it is I'm talking about reimagining success like Mm -hmm. obviously people are like what are you talking about but for me it's like I just want to be in those spaces where like what we're working towards is is so counter to what we've been told we should be working towards but in that process you have to do so much translation that it gets blurred the blur the line between what your version of success is and what is needed for the the real world quote-unquote success, the white world success, those things get blurred the more that you're responding to it. I think the other half is that, like, 
the practice of reimagining and taking steps towards manifesting this imaginative space, and I'm only using imaginative because it isn't something we've seen. Yeah. That that's not to say that it isn't possible, because I know imaginative or imagination is tethered to like the impossible or the mm-hmm. magical. That's not what I'm saying, but I think that to manifest our dreams, I should say, is risky, especially as it pertains to trying to create a model that resists. Specifically, if we want to talk about the legacy of money inside of our nation, in particular, the United States. And so I'm like, because even for me, I think a part of it is having to push up against this like scarcity mindset. Like I'm in the practice of always trying, one, paying people for what the time that they give me, but also like, oh, hey, I'm teaching this class. I know that you would also benefit from teaching and I also would benefit from having another person in the space. I have to split this money down half. I don't know where I'm going to get the other money for my bills from. But to push, to take a risk, right, and push up against what I'm used to having to do being an artist in New York, everything is, like, very, very scarcity mindset. Like, I'm making, I'm, I'm getting residencies and I'm doing solos because I need that money to pay rent. Would my work benefit from a collaborative process? Sure, but I can't afford that because I don't know when I'm going to get the next thing. And so I acknowledge that, a part of a part of being able like you said a part of being able to like imagine new places new things new models requires privilege which in order to acquire privilege you have to abide by a system yeah. and so unfortunately if anybody were to critique our careers at some point we would have been the very people that we're trying to push up against and it's it's like uncomfortable but you have to accept that being a villain in your own story is inevitable. And I think that's what feels gross. And I think, honestly, I can feel that in her work, too, like wanting to be successful. I wrote down, like, your question is, how can you be satisfied? And my question is, like, how can I just create a legacy that I'll be proud of? And that's my... One, I think everything you just said sounds like a table of contents to a book that I would love to read. But, y'all, I promise, I promise you I adore Jelly. I promise you I adore Jelly. And also, these episodes just get, like, more and more fun. Like, every time we record an episode, I'm like, bitch, I fucking love you, ho. Child, I love you. You know, like, I really be like, wow. How blessed am I to have created this podcast to like then somehow funnel into making these spaces and like meeting people like Jelly Low Black. Like, I ain't gonna hold y'all too long because I know this episode is long, but I appreciate you lending me your ear. I appreciate you all coming through. Um, this is part one of what will probably be another three part um, segment because we recorded like another three hours. <laughs> We just can't help if we talk so much because we we don't get to engage with people like this on a daily basis. So when we end up getting into the room together, we literally have to say, okay, sir, I'm not talking to you for three hours. Or, okay, Jelly, I cannot do this for another two hours. Um, But, yeah, the next episodes will release in, um, like, two-week increments. I like to do that so it's not, you know, a lot of pressure on me. So every other week I will be releasing um, the rest of the parts of this episode. But, yeah, y'all. Thank you for tuning into another episode of the Black Box News Podcast. I'm your host, Sira L. Ward, artivist, black woman, Gria. Y'all stay blessed now.
give up now.